You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Hey, any leap year birthdays here? Anybody? Any leap year birthdays? I don't see a one. Wow. There are a lot of bad, very predictable leap year jokes, and I will not, I will not ass- assault you. But for those with leap year birthdays, right, only the jokes get old, right? Only the jokes get old. <laughs> Little drum roll, please. Where are you up here? Drum roll for that. I kind of caught you from behind on that one. Hey, I'd like to take a moment for our congregational prayer this morning. I'd like to pray for our friends, our brothers and sisters in, uh, at Grace Point a Church in southern Delaware County. Uh, many of them are our friends, uh, 2,000, about uh, 50 adults and 50 kids left here and uh, started the church there. It's just a fantastic community. And uh, if you did not hear this past week, one of the pastor's wives suddenly passed away. Really a terrible, terrible circumstance. And um, she was their women's director for about 13 years. And uh, her and her husband were just embarking to move to North Carolina to be with their daughters. And uh, actually in the midst of planning one of their weddings. So very, very dramatic loss. And, uh, and again, I'm not quite sure if you're aware of this, but about two years ago, Grace Point lost their children's director. And again, she passed away as well. So they've had two really significant losses here in the last couple of years. And I thought we'd take a moment here as their brothers and sisters to lift them up in prayer together. So let's, let's, let's do that. Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you. We are part of the same family, whether friends or 20 minutes away or whether they live on the other side of the world, we are part of this global family of brothers and sisters who identify and belong to Jesus and are part of his church. And we lift up Terry and Kelly, the Terry, the lead pastor there, and other friends that we know, and we know, Father, that they are hurting deeply. And uh, we pray for them this morning. We want to come alongside of them in our prayers. And, Lord, feel what they feel this morning. And pray that as they're mourning, they could receive the comfort that comes only from you. And the peace that comes from you. As they gather Wednesday night as a church for the funeral, we pray that there would be a special uh, sense of the presence of your Holy Spirit speaking to and ministering to that church. And uh, we thank you for them. We thank you for their great faith. And we pray that in this moment of hurt and ache that they would band together even more deeply and, Lord, allow the pain to draw them to you and draw them to one another to make them more like Jesus as a church. Father, continue there to do a, a, a repeat performance 
of Jesus' life through them and through us as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, can you remember a moment in life when everything changed? Sort of like what happened to them this week. Something happens, something big happens, something you could not prepare for, and it changed your life in a significant way. Now, hard things can come into our lives without warning, but good things can too, like an unexpected job offer or a surprise meeting of a person that will be your future spouse. In 1980, when my uh, wife Louise was away at college, a brush fire in the mountains surrounding her family home turned dangerous in a matter of minutes. Kicked up by gusting Santa Ana winds, the whole mountain lit up, sending black billowy clouds of smoke into the air. Fireballs fell from the sky onto their neighborhood of homes that were all built with wood slate shingles. Without warning, her mother, who was home, had minutes to flee and only seconds to decide what to take. Now, her mother and family were safe, but their home burned to the ground along with 280 of their neighbors' homes. In a moment, their lives were changed. Here we are in the Gospel of Luke, and as Jesus continues his journey towards Jerusalem, he has a day like that on his mind. Now, we've been in Luke for about a year, and I love preaching through the books of the Bible. And I know it can become tedious for you. It can also become tedious for us. We could opt for a strategy to pique your interest and change to a new topic every four weeks. Many churches do that, and I, I get it. But when you preach through a book, you emphasize what Jesus emphasizes, and you run headlong into messages like today. Messages that I don't like giving, I don't relish giving, and messages that you may not like to hear. But we don't get to make this up. We are the created not the creator. We are the paint for the canvas. He is the painter. And so we welcome his words, all his words, even the hard ones. So let's dive into this. If you want to follow along, at least in the beginning, uh, I'm not going to have the scripture up on the slide, so it might be helpful for you to follow along in your Bible. If you use the Pew Bible, we're at page 876. And we're going to start at verse 20 of Luke 17. We'll start right there. All right? Here we go. Lord, bless your word. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in the ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, the Pharisees believed that certain signs would accompany the coming of the kingdom, a coming with powerful cosmic signs that would shake up the political powers that ruled them. Now, they got part of that right. There would be a future coming with cosmic signs, but not in the beginning. And they did not interpret the signs clearly because their heart was set on an earthly salvation. Thus, 
they missed the reality that the kingdom of God was standing right in their midst. The presence of God's leadership and rule was all wrapped up into a person, Jesus. The king had slipped into the world with quietly without any fanfare. Next verses. And Jesus said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. So Jesus turns to now his disciples, and as he does, he pivots from speaking about the present to the future. Okay? He refers to an event that they will not live to see. Now, what are the days of the Son of Man? From the ancient prophecies, Jewish expectation held that the kingdom of God would come as part of the day of the Lord. The Old Testament often refers to days coming that will bring judgment and distress. Who is the Son of Man? Well, the Son of Man is a phrase that Jesus has taken from the Old Testament book of Daniel. It was Jesus' favorite title to refer to himself. And indeed, 600 years before Christ, Daniel prophesied about one who would come and bring an eternal kingdom. So, from all this, we begin to get a picture that Jesus is talking about a future day that he will return. Look at the next passage. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out to follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus points out that this future day of the Son of Man will be visible and unmistakable, just as lightning is an undeniable physical wonder. He will not come in a concealed, secretive, or mysterious way. And so Jesus warns the disciples and warns us today, don't follow after so-called messiahs or pretenders. And once again, because it was foreign to their thinking, Jesus reminded them that the king would first have to suffer and be rejected. Now, next, he begins to drill down into what this day will be like. And when it says days there, you might be confused with this, when it says days, I don't take it to be plural, indicating multiple events. But this is the way we might describe an event in history identified by a single person's accomplishments. For example, when talking about Greek history, we might say the days of Alexander the Great. So to describe the days of the Son of Man, Jesus turns to two Old Testament examples. Here's the first one, is the next scripture. Jesus says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So there are two things here. 
One, there is a swift and devastating judgment amidst people living out their normal lives who were utterly unprepared for encountering God. And two, somebody's rescued. Noah and his family. There's a judgment and there's a rescue. We know from Noah's story in Genesis that he and his family loved God. Second example, read next. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day Lot went from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be when the Son of Man is revealed. Same two elements. Devastating judgment amidst normal life, people living normal life completely unprepared. And again, someone is rescued. In this case, Lot is rescued. Now, Lot's love for God left a lot to be desired. Pretty clever, wasn't it? But even Lot has a small amount of saving faith. Now, stop for a moment, pause. I recognize that these pictures of judgment jar our senses. Uh, my friend and our friend, Corey Bacher, Corey's here this morning, is a, has given his life to studying the Old Testament, and he's helped me with some of these challenges. Corey has told me and has said that God does not bring a judgment about like this without three elements, a witness, a warning, and time. And the patience that God gives for people to change and turn to Him reveals His incredible kindness and mercy. And by the way, I'm convinced that God is far more patient than any human being would be. One of the most repeated statements, it's a creed almost, about God in the Old Testament is that He is compassionate, gracious, and slow to anger. Both of these cultures received a witness, a warning, and time. Look at the next passage. On that day, let the one who is in the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. Now, Jesus returns to the day of the Son of Man after paralleling these two or comparing it to these two Old Testament examples. On that day, Jesus says, everything will change. Everything. On that day, everything will be turned upside down. People who are working their jobs, paying their bills, living their lives, planning for the future, and living like any other day. Yet, on that day, there will be no time left for last-minute preparations. The Boy Scout motto to be prepared will be out the window. There is no use turning back to reclaim a few items or returning to the familiar or the comfortable. This is not the same as going into your burning house to retrieve a few cherished items to live on. When the Son of Man returns, an entirely new reality, a new age will begin, and the old will be gone forever. There is no use returning for that favorite coffee mug. Now, Jesus here is pointing symbolically to the heart. He is warning against a consuming desire 
to hold on to my life as it is and my things and my possessions and my worldly ties at all costs. Exhibit one is what? Lot's wife. Now, again, this bears a little explanation. This is a story told in Genesis chapter 19. In verse 17 of that chapter, an angel is sent to warn Lot of the impending judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. He warns him not to look away or to stop fleeing once the judgment begins, lest they are swept away. Later in the chapter, we learn that Lot's wife did exactly that. When fleeing the awful scene, ignoring the warning, she looked back and perhaps, as the ESV Bible comments, she was engulfed in the fiery matter raining in molten lumps from the sky. From the commentary Jesus gives about holding on to your life, the proverbial saying he gives, it is clear that Lot's wife did not have a memory lapse. It is clear that Lot's wife did not have a fascination with lava. <laughs> Turning to look back is a poetic way of describing a longing for my old self first, me first life. Look at the next passage. I tell you, in the night there will be two in bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, meaning grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. What's the point of this? The point is, is the coming day is going to split people right down the middle. It is not a matter of who goes and who doesn't, of physical proximity or relational closeness. It will cut right through families and co-workers. Those who are spiritually ready will live and work right next to those who are not. Now, we see a little hint here of how Christ followers are integrated into the world. Christ followers are not to separate themselves from the world. Cloistered away on some mountain, raising exotic plants, eating wild boar, and living off the land. No, we're not to quit college or stop working or stop loving or stop having children. In some ways, we're just like our friends and neighbors. We live in the same neighborhoods, work at the same places, go to the same schools, shop at the same stores, play on the same youth sports teams. Right alongside of those who are not ready for the day. Yet in other ways, with reset values and life goals, our lives should be radically different. There is the duality of living in the world, but not being of the world. This is the tension that we carry as Christ followers. I like what Frederick Danker said. He said, precisely because everything goes on as usual, the disciple cannot carry on business as usual. Now next, to wrap up this chapter, comes a really difficult, challenging saying. Let's see what the disciples ask. The disciples at the end of the chapter say, and they say to Jesus, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What does that mean? 
Now, there are many and varied interpretations of this. The most compelling one I found is from F.F. Bruce. I believe the intent of the question is, Jesus, where will this judgment occur? And Jesus' answer is, when, wherever there is a situation that calls for it. This saying is like a proverb, and it is almost an exact quotation from Job 39.30. If you look up that verse in Job, you'll see it says, well, actually, let me say this first. And Job 39.30 communicates this point that judgment will occur wherever the situation that calls for it. That's why I think this is the most compelling uh, interpretation. Now, if you look up that verse in Job, you'll see it says eagle rather than vulture. Know that the original word can be translated either way. In fact, many older versions of the Bible do translate it eagle. Okay? Now, chapter 18 is not for next week. In chapter 18, obviously a chapter break. Ignore that. It should not be there. Jesus tells a parable about prayer, but he is carrying on the same thought. Let's read on. 18 verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Two very colorful characters set in contrast. One, cold-blooded, shamelessly self-sufficient to judge. The other, a widow, destitute, but persistent and pesky like a bulldog. One with the power to change a life, the other symbolic of the most vulnerable. Now the judge gives in, not out of love or change of heart or some noble ideal, but to get her off his back. She wore him down. Let me give you a modern day equivalent. The following is a Facebook post from a woman named Diane in South Dakota. At about 10.30, my phone rang. It was Governor Mike Rounds checking in with us to see how the road repair was doing. There had been a lot of flooding in the area where Diane lives, and the roads were a mess, and the governor actually called her to see at 10.30 at night how she felt about their repair progress. This was not the first time the governor had called her. Another time, some years ago, one of South Dakota's previous governors called about some FEMA money for the area, and she reported that when the governor called, she was in the middle of a home perm. But she couldn't very well tell the governor to hold while she rinsed her hair. So she added, that frizzy hair haunted me for weeks. Now, Diane, who is not a government official at any level, when asked about this, said, I have found that shaking the tree from the top gets the fastest results. When there is a problem, I usually become the squeaky wheel, and I think they just want to get me off their case. That's this woman. I also know that South Dakota has about 764 people in it as well. I Probably more buffalo than people in South Dakota, but nonetheless, you get the point. Look at the next verse. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. 
Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's why this section is all one. Wow. Don't those words send chills down your back? They send chills down my back. They stop me in my tracks. Will he find faith on earth when he returns? Jesus is not only talking about prayer. He is talking about staying faithful to the end. When he is talking about staying faithful when you have been treated unjustly. When the world is against you. When everything you believe in is disregarded or rejected by those around you. The point of the unrighteous judge is to show the stark contrast. If even this unfeeling judge can do it for self-serving reasons, how much more will the God who loves you fulfill his commitment to bring perfect justice for his children? I know you were waiting, he says. I know it seems I will never return. I know it feels like the world is winning and the church is losing ground. But Jesus shouts aloud to believers three remarkable promises. Number one, I will come back. Number two, I will rescue you. And number three, I will make all things right. Justice, truth, love, and the people of God will prevail. And as he delays, we are tempted not to believe, not to hold on, to turn back. And Jesus says to us today, hold on to me until I return. And hold on to my promises. So, this I take to be the meaning, the primary meaning of this passage. Now, Let's shift towards application. How can we practically apply this beyond what I've just said? Well, Jesus makes clear that prayer is a vital part of sustaining faith. And I see a couple of applications here related to prayer. One, pray for the suffering, persecuted church. And number two, pray for the truth of our witness to prevail. Let me share with you why I think this is the case. Number one, pray for the suffering, persecuted church. And go ahead and turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. It's the last book of the Bible. And I want to show you the connection between what we read in Luke and what we read here in Revelation. In this book, if you have not read Revelation, Jesus' friend the Apostle John is given a series of visions and dreams about the future and is instructed to write them down. Much of the book, as I understand it, revolves around a similar theme. It predicts the coming judgment and rescue to what Jesus, as Jesus has just described in Luke. It looks forward to Jesus' return. It is encouragement for believers and a warning to non-believers. I believe Revelation rolls through a variety of pictures surrounding the same event, the return of Jesus. It would be akin to a different camera angle spread all around a football stadium, capturing the same play, each angle providing new perspective, 
and increasing detail. Here in chapter 6, there is a particular series of judgments referred to as seals. The seals have been kept hidden, or they've been written down and hidden and written on scrolls. Chapter 5 describes how Jesus was found worthy to break the seals of these scrolls, thus releasing the unfolding will of God. I believe what happens with the breaking of these seals represents the church throughout history. And starting in verse 9, Jesus breaks open the fifth of the seven seals. Let's read verse 9. And this is page, by the way, if you're using our Bible, page 1031. Revelation 6, 19. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. We have here, what do we have here? We have a persecuted, suffering church crying out for justice and vindication. They wanted the world to know the rightness of Jesus' story and their witness. The echoes of the cry of the chosen ones described in the parable by Jesus, these are those same echoes. Like the widow, these believers while on earth could not rely on their own resources. They were powerless, so to speak, against authorities, against governments opposed to Jesus and his church. Now, this is hard, friends, for us. It's hard for us to wrap our heads and our hearts around the suffering church, but I want us to try. Imagine being the husband of a wife martyred in third century Rome, or a daughter to an Anabaptist father taken from you and imprisoned in 16th century Germany, or a mother losing a beloved son martyred in 21st century Sudan. It's hard for us to imagine this, and it, it doesn't make our own personal suffering trivial. I'm not suggesting that, the things that we have to go through. I'm not suggesting that's trivial or unimportant. But I'm trying to help us understand this impulse for vengeance and for, for vindication. And, and that requires us to use our imaginations to step into their shoes. You know, some of us have bumped up close to this through friends that have joined us in our church who've come from different families. Uh, Members of our church or friends of our church that have lost family members to war, to violence, to injustice, or whose lives, very lives, have been threatened. They can maybe taste a little better this yearning for judgment and vindication. The recent award-winning movie, The Hidden Life, tells the story of a simple Austrian peasant farmer named Franz Jagerstadter, a devout Catholic. He refused to fight for Hitler in the Second World War. 
because he could not in good conscience support the Nazi regime. Now, this movie didn't do well here. I don't know why. But it won numerous awards all over Europe. In 1943, the Third Reich executed him. I'd encourage you, by the way, just to watch the trailer. <laughs> Every time I watch it, I find myself in tears at the end. But imagine being his wife and three daughters or him in heaven saying, Lord, when will justice, when will the rightness of my cause become clear? Listen, friends, one thing that we can do is appreciate, try to appreciate what this passage means to believers throughout the world today that are suffering, jailed, imprisoned, are losing their life for their faith. If we can imagine that, then we can pray for them more meaningfully. Can we not? Let's finish this passage. Look at verse 12 in Revelation 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig trees shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gate. The sky, remember like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Remember the cosmic signs we talked about earlier. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains like Adam hid from God. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. From the great, from the, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? This is a picture of the return of Jesus and the end of history as we know it. Jesus assures his chosen ones there will be a day where every injustice will be made right. As in the story of Luke, there is both rescue and judgment. And though there's not rescue here, if you look at chapter 8, chapter 8 speaks of rescue before the seventh and final seal is given. Now, I do not take these cosmic signs to be physical are literal, but in my opinion, they point to an upheaval or an overturning of all earthly powers. This is what Sam Storm says about this passage. When Jesus returns, he will judge and destroy every political organization that opposes him. He will bring devastation on every government, every army, every nation, every philosophical movement, and every financial institution that refuses to submit to his lordship. This is what Jesus is describing, or what John is describing here. Wrapping up this first point, you know, according to Christians in Crisis International Ministry, 200 million people face persecution for believing in Jesus around the world. And 60% of those people are children. This future helps us not lose hope. This future helps us and helps them not lose hope as we pray for the suffering and persecuted church. Now let me move to the second point, the second application. I believe this passage also points to praying for the truth of our witness to prevail. Do you remember how the widow wore the judge down begging for justice? In light of that, Daryl Bach asked this of the church. He writes, to use the imagery of the parable, do we with unity wear God down? 
with such a request for vindication? I dare say we do not. I dare say we do not. But this is how the church in Acts prayed. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Go ahead, Acts chapter 4. I'm gonna, I'll mention the context. Page 912. What's going on here is that Peter and John, leaders among the disciples, Peter and John had been detained by religious authorities. They were warned and threatened to no longer speak about Jesus. And when they were released and returned to their anxious friends and told them of their adventure, a prayer meeting broke out. And they prayed against the attempt to silence them, to oppress them. They prayed against repression and the, 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 the seeking of trying to discount their experiences with Jesus. Look at the fierceness of their prayer, beginning in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, they were not shaken, were they? By this. And with subtle irony, actually they weren't shaken, but the room they prayed in was shaken. When opposed, they prayed all the more desperately for the justice of their cause to prevail. Now, can you speak for a moment to the life group leaders that are here? I just want to get very practical. Beginning tonight, life group leaders, will you this week please? Will you include in your prayers for one another, which we so cherish, will you include in your prayers this week at your sessions, at your meeting, prayer for the suffering and persecuted church and a prayer for the truth of our witness to prevail? Right here in our own city, in our own schools and universities, in our own neighborhoods and workplaces, pray for the truth of our witness, our testimony to prevail. Leaders, can I ask you to do that this week as a simple, concrete way of applying what we're learning today? So let me conclude by saying this. I realize this morning this is a hard message. It was a hard message to prepare, to think about. It's a hard message to give. It's a hard message to hear. I recognize the picture of Jesus as judge is hard to reconcile with Jesus as lamb. I recognize it is hard, extremely hard for our Western minds to wrap our heads around this. We in the West, we see ourselves, this is what we're taught, that we are free and independent beings. We are arbiters of our own morality. We are accountable to no one. And many demand to know, how does this God have a right to judge and people forever? And we bristle at the notion of there being a judgment and hell and people forever separated from God. But I may not be able, if you're in that camp, to fully persuade you this morning to think differently, but let me just throw out some questions to initiate conversation. Can you imagine a world where God does not judge sin? 
Picture a world where God does not judge or prevent or seek to stop sin. Can you imagine a world like that? Where lawlessness is unchecked and has no boundary. In ancient Rome, when the Republic began to fail in the days of Julius Caesar and the rule of law deteriorated and the man with the biggest army voted himself emperor, Rome became a very dangerous place to live. In Paris, during the French Revolution, when the French declared themselves free from religion and worshipped reason, human liberty and freedom collapsed under the will to power as the guillotine swung 360 degrees. What I mean by that is that those who initiated the guillotine died by it. Paris became a dangerous place to live. No one wants to live where there is brazen lawlessness and random violence. Can you imagine a heaven where God did not judge sin? And unrepentant sinners, those rebelling against God and reason, were not barred from it. What kind of heaven would that be if God were not big enough or powerful enough to bring a final decisive blow to evil? It would be like earth. It would be like here. Or even worse, because there'd be no death to slow evil down, to decelerate it. When we do not want God to judge, I'm not sure we know quite what we're asking for. The Bible does say that there is a day of wrath after hundreds of years of patience, of witness, of warning. There is a day of wrath that will come. And that, friends, that day of wrath is not going to come from an egotistical, petulant, erratic, Zeus-like God recklessly throwing thunderbolts like a grade school boy. No, it will come from a very patient and loving creator who has given human beings as much opportunity as he as he can and in the end he simply lets them have their way that creator has a right to judge because he authored the human story he authored the human story and he will fulfill his responsibility to bring it to a just and merciful close yes god we believe does have a right to judge And when he does that, this is the other side of the story, when he does that, he will usher in then a new and remade world. N.T. Wright says this, the New Testament building on ancient prophecy envisages that the creator God will remake heaven and earth entirely, affirming the goodness of the old creation, but overcoming its morality and corruptibility. When that happens, Jesus will appear within the resulting new world. Friends, if you're not yet a Jesus follower, the reason that we believe this is because we believe that history bears very clearly that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead with a new body. 
This is why we as Christians have a reason, an historical space-time reason to believe that this new world is in our future. And if you are not yet a Christian, let me ask you, do you not want to be a part of this remade world, this renewed world? Wouldn't you like to be a part of this world where the time of testing will be finished? And in our new creation, and living in our new creation, we will be incapable of sin and evil and injustice because the time of testing is finished. A new world. Wouldn't you, friend, like to be a part of that? The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The day to judge and the day to rescue. Luke shows us this gospel is for everyone. Just as God showed no bias in his judgment, it fell on every class of people, so he shows no bias in whom he rescues. All are welcome. You ask, what must we do? Pretty simple. All we must do is recognize the desperateness of our situation, believe his promises, and flee to him for mercy. If you have never fled to Jesus for mercy, I urge you, I beg you today to do it. You can just pray this prayer with me. And close your eyes. If this is you, just repeat this prayer simply with me. Just one sentence. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen. And now together, church, join with me and let's practice what I just said. Let's pray the prayers that we've learned this morning. Pray with me. Father, this morning we lift up the persecuted and suffering church around the world. We want to empathize with their suffering and join them in their cry for justice as they wait for you to return. And Father, we pray for a filling of the Holy Spirit. We pray for boldness to speak. And we pray, Father, for the rightness of our witness, the justice of our witness to prevail in our city, in our nation, and in our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Today has all been about the return of Jesus. And Jesus told us on the eve of his crucifixion, when he joined the disciples in the upper room with two elements in his hand, the bread and the wine. And he said, take this bread and eat. It represents my body, my life in you. Take this wine and drink. It represents a new covenant, a new promise, the forgiveness of sins. And he's, what did he say? Remember, take this until I This is how we represent the life of Jesus in us. And it is also how we always remember and keep in front of us his return. So, ushers, you can start, you can come down and begin to release you. You'll be released row by row. Come forward, take uh, an element of the bread, take the juice, take it back to your seat. You can, you can uh, uh, take the bread and juice any time during this next several songs.
If you are not yet a Jesus follower, feel free to come forward and just see what takes place here. We want you to be able to observe uh, what's happening here and what it means to us to take the bread and the juice to remember Jesus until he comes. Bless the Lord.